turn in your Bibles this morning to three passages of Scripture. Amos chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and Acts chapter 15. Amos chapter 9, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and Acts chapter 15. Before I begin my message, I want to ask each of you to pause in silence for just a few seconds and ask yourselves a question. Certainly, we know that the tabernacle and temple of the Old Testament are primarily Christological, foreshadowing the redemptive graces and the resplendent glories of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we also know that both the tabernacle and the temple have secondary typological meaning as well. So ask yourself this. If the Old Testament tabernacle or temple is a type or shadow pointing forward, first to Jesus and then secondarily to something else, Which of the two following secondary antitypes do you really think would represent the higher fulfillment of the tabernacle or temple as a type or shadow? A future physical tabernacle, a future physical temple made of gold, silver, brass, cedar, and shittim wood, Or would the higher and more profound antitype be a spiritual edifice comprised of living stones that grow up into a holy temple of the Lord? Which of those two antitypes would be then the most glorious fulfillment of the tabernacle or temple? Also ask yourself this. Which of those two secondary antitypes is mentioned frequently in the New Testament and which one is never mentioned? A future rebuilt physical tabernacle or temple or a spiritual tabernacle or temple? In the foyer of this chapel, a mural pictures the five men most instrumental in the founding of this seminary. One of those men is the person after whom this chapel is named, Dr. W.J. Dorman, whom I was privileged to know when I was a little boy. In that mural and during his lifetime, Dr. Dorman stood alone and apart from the other four men in one way his view of biblical prophecy. Nonetheless, he was welcome here. I would also note, without naming him, that another one of those five men, not my father, told me privately in a detailed personal letter that he too had embraced Dr. Dorman's position. I tell you this because providence demands of me today 
that like Dr. Dorman, I might stand alone and apart from some of you, and perhaps most of you. Why? Because my address involves a highly technical, hermeneutical issue about which we may agree or agree to disagree. But potential disagreement about this matter should not be a reason for us to break fellowship, but rather to break bread with a holy kiss and say, Brother, I disagree with you, but I love you. Of course, I hope by the end of the discourse you will agree with what I have to say. I claim no infallibility in the interpretation of Holy Scripture, but I do implore your prayerful and patient consideration of my observations. May God give me the grace to speak the truth in love, and may he give all of us the grace to be good Bereans and search the Scriptures whether these things be so. Before we examine the texts before us, please look at your handout and notice the following terms that are highly important for today's lecture. First of all, Masoretic text. From the Hebrew Masoret, meaning tradition. The Masoretic text is the traditional Hebrew text of the Jewish Bible, meticulously assembled and codified and supplied with diacritical marks to enable correct pronunciation. Septuagint, known by the abbreviation 70, the Septuagint is the earliest extant Greek translation of the Old Testament from the original Hebrew. Targum, a targum is an Aramaic translation or paraphrase of a portion of the Old Testament. Targum can refer either to a body of literature or a hermeneutical method. Targumic practice included the embedding and interpretational elements within the Hebrew text in a seamless fashion. And today we will see a stunning and perhaps startling example of targumic embedding and interpretation. Metergamon. A metergamon is a religious officiant or official of the early Hebrew synagogue who orally translated the scriptures from Hebrew into the vernacular, Aramaic. Although written records of targamic translation were originally forbidden, we nonetheless have numerous written targamim that have survived. Moreover, the Apostle Paul himself practiced a targamic way of reading and engaging the Holy Scripture in various places in his letters. For instance, in Romans 1.17, Paul's citation of Habakkuk 2.4 does not exactly match any known Habakkuk text. <clears throat> conflation. In literature, conflation means a composite reading of two or more texts. The targamic rendering we will examine today probably also involves conflation. And lastly, C.I. Schofield. Mr. Schofield was the editor of the Schofield Bible and the first American popularizer of dispensational premillennialism. Now, 
Let us note the two most important scripture passages we shall consider today. Actually, only a handful of words that appear in our English Bibles. First of all, three words from Amos 9-11. In that day. In the Masoretic text, that reads, Bayom. And in the Septuagint, Ante Hemera Ikaine. Then from the English New Testament, Acts 15, after this, better translated after these, or after those things. <clears throat> Next, may I assert six presuppositions foundational to my remarks. First of all, God's word, not commentaries, not best-selling books, and not popular opinions, God's word, must be our final authority on all doctrinal matters. Secondly, when God's word contradicts our opinions, no matter how long or deeply held, we must bow beneath the shining scepter of spiritual illumination and surrender our opinions, even surrender our convictions to the only infallible author and interpreter of both the Old and the New Testaments, God the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. Fourthly, as some wise expositor once said, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. That is, when Jesus Christ, an apostle, or a writer of the New Testament interprets an Old Testament passage, then we must take off our shoes upon that holy ground and bow to the infallible authority of the Messiah, the Apostle, or the inspired writer. That especially applies when an authoritative interpreter of Scripture shocks us with an interpretation that defies normal logic such as when Jesus Christ himself tells us that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy of the coming Elijah. As Jesus said to his disciples, quote, If you are willing to accept it, he, referring to John the Baptist, he is Elijah, unquote. In Holy Scripture, there are, in Peter's words, some things hard to be understood. And today we will explore one of the most intriguing, complex, and hardest passages in the Bible. And finally, and most importantly for today's lecture, Amos chapter 9 cannot be understood apart from Luke's infallible record of James' divinely inspired citation and interpretation of, Acts, uh, of Amos 9, 11, and 12. As I said, a highly complex technical point of hermeneutics looms before us today as we closely examine Luke's record of James' citation of Amos 9, 11, and 12 Recorded in Acts 15, verses 15 and 16. Now, 
As you will note in your Greek text or your English translation, Luke records James' words as a direct quotation of Amos 9, 11, and 12. The quote begins with this phrase, quote, after this, unquote, and ends with words that refer to the Davidic temple, quote, I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, unquote. The hermeneutical problem lies with the words after this. Luke's record of James' quotation of Amos 9-11 includes the words, his quotation includes the words, after this. Better translated as a demonstrative pronoun in the accusative voice, neuter in gender and plural in number, such as after these things or after those things, as opposed to after this. The phrase after those things functioning, not as a separate linking phrase between James' summary of Peter's words and his quotation of Amos, but rather James quotes after this as part and parcel to the original declaration of Yahweh spoken to and through Amos. But therein lies the hermeneutical problem. We have no extant Old Testament manuscript that corroborates after this or after those things as being original to Yahweh's words in Amos' prophecy. Rather, both the Hebrew text and the Greek Septuagint render Amos 9.11 to begin with the phrase, in that day. Only the Greek New Testament records after those things as inherent to the Amos text. And that New Testament variant is undisputed in New Testament manuscript history. Nonetheless, the Hebrew text differs from that and reads by own in that day or in the day. And the Septuagint also reads differently as ante himera ikaine, reinforcing the original wording as in that day. So what do we have here? A variant reading between the Masoretic and Septuagint texts on the one hand that say in that day versus on the other hand the words of James and Luke that omit in that day and replace it with, quote, after those things, unquote. So which reading is correct? And what are we to conclude about this apparent contradiction in language? Including both liberal and conservative approaches, at least, at least five explanations of this textual anomaly are possible. One, James' memory failed him as he tried to recite the Amos quotation. And thus James mistakenly said, after those things, instead of in that day. And then Luke faithfully recorded James's error. Or, 
James properly quoted Amos 9.11, but the mistake is Luke's, who erred in his written account of James's quotation of Amos, incorrectly writing after those things instead of in that day. Or, both James and Luke quote a Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek manuscript that we no longer possess. One that differs slightly from our extant manuscripts, but is equally divinely authoritative. Or, a higher possibility. Some scholars suggest that James conflates two or more prophetic texts. After all, in Acts 15, 16, James does not say, and to this the words of the prophet singular agree, but rather, James says, and to this agree the words of the prophets. Or finally, another and perhaps the highest possibility. James is functioning as a divinely inspired metergamon, whom Luke precisely records. In that case, James imposes upon the original Hebrew biome or the Septuagint ente himera echine, a targamic interpretation of Amos' original prophecy that reads, not in that day, but rather after those things. Now, we certainly cannot accept the first two scenarios, that James or Luke made a mistake. And as to the third scenario, only a remote possibility exists, that James and or Luke recited from a no longer extant Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek variant of Amos' prophecy. So, we therefore speculate either the fourth or the fifth scenario, or perhaps a synthesis of both scenarios four and five. That would lead us to conclude that James conflates two or more prophetic texts and or James speaks as a divinely inspired metergamon, imposing upon Bayom and in Tehimera Echine, an inexact but equally authoritative targamic embedding and interpretation that replaces in that day with after those things. In other words, if James conflates two or more prophetic texts and or interprets the Amos text in targamic fashion, then James sees his quote, addition to, or his, quote, change of, unquote, the original Hebrew of Greek as a faithful interpretation of the meaning of the text. If we were to ask James, why did you change the meaning of the text? He would say, I didn't change the meaning of the text. I was faithful to the text. I'm telling you what the text means especially for the here and now. But this complex textual variant is only the proverbial tip of the iceberg 
with regard to a proper understanding of James's quotation of Amos. Textual variation aside, the much, much larger issues are as follows. First, Acts 15:16 remains one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to interpret, and one of the easiest to misinterpret. And secondly, how in the world do we determine exactly what James means by his conflated quotation or his targumic interpretation of in that day as after those things? <clears throat> when we think of dramatic moments in the early church, such as the Jerusalem Council, we might automatically expect Peter or Paul to take center stage. Indeed, Peter and Paul play important roles at the council. But the most important speaker before the council that day was not those more famous and influential apostles, but rather James, the son of Alphaeus. So we ask ourselves, why would James emerge as the most important speaker at the Jerusalem council and not Peter or Paul? Historical tradition recognizes James, called the lesser because of his diminutive stature, as the first bishop of the Jerusalem church. Hence, as bishop of Jerusalem, James would naturally exercise some degree of leadership in the proceedings ex officio. Obviously, James spoke to the Jerusalem council in support of Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. But the meaning of James' address is not so obvious, especially his citation of the Old Testament book of Amos as a proof text of Peter's declaration about God's visitation upon the Gentiles. In fact, James's citation of Amos chapter 9 is quite tricky, an extremely difficult passage to analyze in the context of James's words to the council. To aid us in our understanding this admittedly difficult text, listen to James's words in Acts 15, 13 through 19, with special emphasis upon James's quotation of Amos 9, 11, 12. Quote, and after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord. And all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Unquote. Essentially. The interpretive problem of James's use of Amos is a matter of grammar, specifically the pronoun this, 
which James uses twice in Luke's narrative. Grammarians call such a pronoun a relative pronoun because it functions as a kind of grammatical splice, a word connector that links with and relates to a noun, such as a person, place, idea, or thing. A relative pronoun can point forward to a noun such as this day or backwards to an antecedent noun such as chocolate pudding, that is my favorite dessert. In James's case, he twice uses relative pronouns to point not forwards, but backwards to two different events. Or more technically precise, James himself once uses the singular relative pronoun tuta, this, to point backwards to what Peter has previously stated to the council. James says, quote, and to this, meaning Peter's words, agree the words of the prophets, unquote. And secondly, James quotes Amos 9.11, supplying the phrase meta-tauta, after those things, to point backwards to what Amos prophesied in Amos 9, 1 through 10. Now let's note James' first usage of the pronoun this, tuta. In Acts 15, 15, James first uses the relative pronoun tuta as a grammatical link that points backwards to Peter's words in verse 14. Quote, and to this, this meaning what? This meaning Peter's words. And to this, agree the words of the prophets. Meaning, this refers to Peter's narrative about God's gracious visitation upon the Gentiles. Rereading the pronoun in context clarifies this point. Verse 14. Simeon hath declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree, this meaning God's visitation upon the Gentiles, and to this agree the words of the prophets. Or perhaps a quasi-mathematical equation would be more vivid. This equals God's visitation to the Gentiles. But this in verse 15 also serves a secondary yet equally important function. This functions as a kind of syntactical knot that not only points backwards to Peter's words, but listen carefully, but tuta, this, also ties together both the statements of Peter and Amos. And to this, Peter's words, agree the words of the prophets. In other words, Peter's reference to the calling out of the Gentiles agrees with Amos' prophecy of the rebuilt Davidic tabernacle. Or stated another way, 
Peter's words agree with Amos' prophecy of the rebuilt Davidic tabernacle. Equally important as the term this, the term agree further illuminates our understanding of James's address. James's Greek term for agree is sumphonusin, which means literally to speak with the same voice, sumphonusin, or to be of one mind. Phonetically, sumphonusin sounds like and is in fact the source of our English word symphony, which denotes orchestral harmony such as when musicians are of one mind and harmoniously unite their musical instruments, as it were, to speak with the same voice when they perform a lovely symphony. Thus James' word, sumphonusin, agree, reinforces the relative pronoun this to be a double knot between Peter's reference to the calling out of the Gentiles and Amos' prophecy of the rebuilt Davidic temple. The verb agree indisputably affirms that Peter and Amos are harmonious, or more literally, Peter and Amos are of one mind and speak with the same voice. To reiterate, James says, and to this, Peter's words about the calling of the Gentiles agree the words of the prophets specifically Amos and his prophecy of the Davidic tabernacle. James' meaning is clear and simple. Peter agrees with Amos. That is, Peter's reference to God's visitation upon the Gentiles corresponds to, agrees with, and is thus a synonym for Amos' idea of the tabernacle of David. In other words, Amos' prophecy of the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David is in fact a prophetic metaphor or a type of the calling out of the Gentiles in the New Testament church. To paraphrase, the New Testament church is the tabernacle of David symbolically expressed and spiritually understood. James' second usage of a relative pronoun is the plural tauta, mistranslated in the King James Version, the NIV, and the ESV as the singular this, better translated by the NASB as these, or better yet, those. James' wording involves a variant quotation from the Septuagint. In Acts 15, 16, James recites Amos 9, 11, and 12 to read, not as the Masoretic and Septuagint texts read in that day, but rather the variant reading after those things. After those things I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. At a surface glance, the casual reader can easily misinterpret what James means by after those things. Failing to recognize that James attributes metatauta, after those things, to Amos, 
The errant reader might wrongly suppose that after those things relates to Peter's words in the immediately preceding verse. Therefore, such a reader would mistakenly assume that after those things means after the calling out of the Gentiles. But such a misreading would constitute a quadruple error. First of all, it would be a grammatical error, erroneously assuming that after those things points backward to Peter's words regarding the calling out of the Gentiles. Secondly, it would be a contextual error, failing to recognize that James assigns the phrase after those things, not to Peter's words, but to Amos' prophecy of a future Davidic temple. Thirdly, it would be a chronological error, wrongly deducing that after those things means the rebuilding of the Davidic tabernacle chronologically after the calling out of the Gentiles instead of after what Amos prophesied in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. And lastly, it would be an interpretive error, mistakenly concluding that Amos's prophecy of the tabernacle of David points forward from the Jerusalem council to the future physical rebuilding of the Davidic tabernacle after the calling out of the Gentiles, and not, as James intends for us to understand, that Amos's prophecy of the tabernacle of David agrees with Peter's declaration of the calling out of the Gentiles. James' phrase, after those things, does not refer back to his previous allusion to Peter's words that God had visited the Gentiles, but rather to the original context from which James derives his quotation. In other words, after those things simply and clearly means after the events prophesied in Amos 9, 1 through 10. But as we shall see, a quite famous individual, C.I. Schofield, missed the subtle nuance of James's language, and therefore Schofield completely misunderstood James's interpretation of Amos's prophecy. James concludes his remarks to the Jerusalem Council, saying, quote, Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Unquote. Luke tells us that the Jerusalem Council responded unanimously with one accord and rejoiced for all the consolation. But despite the fact that the Judaizers at the J Jerusalem Council agreed unanimously with James' interpretation of the Davidic tabernacle as a prophetic type of the calling out of the Gentiles, C.I. Schofield does not agree. Schofield insists that the tabernacle of David does not correspond with the calling out of the Gentiles as the Apostle James has so emphatically declared. To the contrary, Schofield maintains that, quote, the calling out of the Gentiles precedes the tabernacle of David, unquote and that the rebuilt tabernacle of David refers to, quote, the final regathering of Israel, unquote, during the millennium 
At which time, he argues, God will, quote, reestablish the Davidic rule over Israel in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, unquote. This begs one question. Why did Schofield fail to understand or accept James's clear assertion that Peter and Amos agreed that God's visitation upon the Gentiles corresponds to the tabernacle of David? The answer to this question can be found in Schofield's study Bible, specifically his footnote to Acts 15, 13 through 16. Through his famous study Bible, Schofield has influenced contemporary eschatology more than any other writer, except perhaps his modern counterparts, Hal Lindsey or Tim LaHaye. Many theologians, pastors, and laypersons innocently presume that because of the Christian community's broad acceptance of the Schofield Bible, it must therefore be an absolutely dependable source, including its footnotes. But such categorical and uncritical acceptance of Schofield's notes has resulted in widespread confusion throughout Christendom. Concerning James' citation of Amos 9, 11, and 12, Schofield says this, quote, Dispensationally, this is the most important passage in the New Testament, unquote. Most important? But as we shall see, Schofield's interpretation of what he considers most important is in fact most egregious. Schofield is an errant reader of the text who commits the quadruple error we previously delineated. Schofield makes a grammatical error, Assuming that James' phrase, after those things, points backward to the calling out of the Gentiles, Schofield commits a contextual error. He mistakenly thinks that Peter's words about the calling out of the Gentiles provide the immediate context to which after those things refers, as opposed to the true context of after those things, which are the events described by Amos in chapter 9, 1 through 10. Schofield commits a chronological error. He interprets the tabernacle of David, not as James interpreted it, but rather as a rebuilt physical temple, and thus posits the rebuilt Davidic tabernacle to occur after the calling out of the Gentiles. And finally, Schofield commits an interpretive error. Actually, three interpretive errors. First, he fails to recognize how Amos' prophecy confirms Peter's argument that God put, quote, no difference, unquote, between Jews and Gentiles. Secondly, Schofield misses the metaphorical meaning of the tabernacle of David as a prophecy of the New Testament church. Thirdly, Schofield fails to recognize that James' authoritative equation of the tabernacle of David with the calling out of the Gentiles, diametrically contradicts Schofield's own interpretation. Schofield's misinterpretation of Acts 15, 13 through 18 hinges on two words, meta-tauta, after those things. In Schofield's mind, 
After those things means after the conversion of the Gentiles. Or more thoroughly stated, after the conversion of the Gentiles, Christ will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David. According to Schofield, after the second coming, specifically seven years after the rapture of the church, and at the beginning of Christ's 1,000-year millennial reign, Jesus Christ will rebuild the physical tabernacle of David, the temple. At a superficial glance, this is exactly what James seems to say. And anyone who reads the text uncritically would be liable to interpret the text that way. But such a reading is in fact a misreading. And it all goes back to the meaning of after those things. Now, listener, you may protest and say, how can you deny the plain meaning of this text? Just look at it. The meaning is obvious. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name and to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written, after this I will return and build again the tabernacle of David. Indeed. That's what the text seems to say. But that is not what the text says at all. In spite of Schofield's erroneous presuppositions and careless scholarship, a factor as simple as a highlighted Bible might have illuminated Schofield's understanding of James's words. Unlike we, contemporary Bible students, Schofield did not have the benefits of a Bible translated, translation that highlighted or indented Old Testament quotes. If Schofield had possessed such a Bible, he might have seen the text in a visually different way, perhaps in bold print or indented, which would have visually emphasized to Schofield the fact that James is not linking after those things to Peter's words about the calling out of the Gentiles, but rather James is linking after those things to the prophecies preceding it in Amos 9, 1 through 10. If you look at your handout, you will easily see after this highlighted as part of the Amos quote. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. Here begins the quote. After this, after what? After the events recorded in Amos 9, 1 through 10. After these things, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, unquote. If Schofield had possessed such a highlighted text, he might have noticed that the phrase after this connected grammatically with its original context, Amos 9, 1 through 10. And such a revelation would have arrested Mr. Schofield's pen in pensive doubt about his bold claim that Acts 15, 13 through 18 is, quote, dispensationally the most important passage in the New Testament, unquote. So what is the point? The point is this, 
The phrase after this or after those things does not connect grammatically, syntactically, thematically, or theologically to the calling out of the Gentiles, but rather to Amos 9, 1 through 10. Schofield never saw that. Now let's consider Amos 9. If Schofield is correct, that after the outcalling of the Gentiles, Christ will return and physically rebuild the Davidic temple, then we could expect that the verses preceding Amos 9, 11, and 12, verses 1 through 10, would corroborate Schofield's interpretation that after this refers to the calling out of the Gentiles in the church age. But this is not the case at all. A simple glance at the original context of Amos's prophecy reveals that Amos 9, 1 through 10 describes nothing whatsoever about a church age or even Peter's idea of the calling out of the Gentiles. To the contrary, the context of Amos's prophecy points not to the Gentiles, much less to the New Testament church, but rather Amos's prophecy points to ethnic and national Israel. More specifically, Amos 9, 1 through 10 points to God's rejection of and God's wrath against national Israel. So, before we read it, ask yourself this question. Does Amos' prophecy sound like, as Schofield contends, the calling out of the Gentiles, the church age, Listen to Amos' words. I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, Smite the lintel of the door, that the posts may shake, and cut them in the head, all of them. And I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, thence shall my hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. Though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my side in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword, and it shall slay them, and I will set my eyes upon them for evil. And not for good. For the Lord God of hosts is he who touches the land. And it shall melt. And all that dwell therein shall mourn. And it shall rise up holy like a flood. And shall be drowned as by the floods of Egypt. It is he that buildeth his stories in the heaven. And hath founded his troop upon the earth. He that calleth for the waters of the sea. And poureth them out upon the face of the earth. Yahweh is his name. Are you not as children of the Ethiopians unto me, O children of Israel, saith Yahweh? Have not I brought up Israel out of the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth saving that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith Yahweh. For lo, I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, 
like as corn is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say, the evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. And that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David in that day. Will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof and I will raise up his ruins. And I will build it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen which are called by my name saith Yahweh who doeth this. Now, in view of the specific language of Amos' prophecy, consider the absurdity of Schofield's claim that after this means after the calling out of the Gentiles. Did God prophesy to the New Testament church through Amos that he would cut them in the head, all of them, that he would slay the last of them? Does God threaten his church like this? That he who flees shall not flee away. He who escapes of them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, thence my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. And though they hide in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. Does God command the serpent to bite the church and the sword to slay them? Does the Almighty command the waters of judgment to drown the church as by the flood of Egypt? Is that the calling out of the Gentiles? Is the New Testament church as the children of Ethiopians to God? No. God forbid. Amos' prophecy in no way corresponds to the calling out of the Gentiles. To the contrary, his prophecy points not to the church age, but rather his prophecy predicts and promises divine vengeance against national Israel whom God calls the sinful kingdom. To reiterate Schofield's interpretation of Amos' prophecy, he errs in four ways. He does not recognize the context in which Amos 9, 11, 12 occurs. He does not recognize James' targamic interpretation of Amos 9, 11, 12. He does not understand how Amos 9, 11, and 12 relates to the tabernacle as a prophetic metaphor of the calling out of the Gentiles. And lastly, Schofield completely misinterprets James's address to the council, and therefore Schofield grossly misrepresents James' words and greatly misleads students of the Bible who accept his interpretation of James's phrase after this. In this matter, Schofield has wrongly divided the word of truth. And one more thing of note regarding Schofield's misinterpretation of Acts 15. Schofield's understanding of the Davidic covenant is equally errant. According to Schofield, the ascendancy of Christ to the Davidic throne and the rebuilding of the Davidic temple occur after the outcalling of the Gentiles during the church age. However, the very prophecy that Schofield imagines to confirm his point of view actually diametrically contradicts it. 
Amos does indeed foresee a reconstructed Davidic temple. But in Amos's prophecy, the Davidic temple is rebuilt not after the reconstitution of national Israel, but to the contrary, after the divine rejection of the nation, as we could plainly see in the text. Also, the original language, listen carefully, the original language of the Davidic covenant emphatically argues against Schofield. No less than three times in 2 Samuel 7, the prophet Nathan employs the term forever to describe the unending tenure of David's throne, David's kingdom, and David's house. Verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. Verse 16, thy throne shall be established forever. But if we are to believe Schofield, the Davidic covenant yet awaits a fulfillment of limited duration. A 1,000 year millennium during which the son of David will temporarily reign. Only to fight yet another day, another military battle against his enemies, after which the earthly Davidic millennium will end. But Nathan's prophecy of the Davidic kingdom knows nothing of a limited 1,000 year duration but rather of an eternal kingdom that Nathan thrice asserts shall last forever. Finally, throughout the New Testament, every reference to the Davidic throne or the Davidic temple points to the post-resurrection ascendancy of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God as the enthroned heir of the Davidic kingdom, and to the New Testament church as the fulfillment of the prophesied Davidic temple. For instance, in his Pentecost sermon, Peter preached that the promised heir of the Davidic throne was the resurrected Christ, and that his ascension to God's right hand fulfilled David's prophecy that his descendant would be coronated as king upon the Davidic throne. Listen to Peter's words. Quote, the patriarch David, being a prophet and knowing God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, meaning David, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ. He did not speak of the second coming of Christ as the moment of ascension, but as the resurrection. And with regard to the New Testament church being the fulfillment of the Davidic temple, let us not forget that James declared that God's visitation upon the Gentiles agreed with Amos' prophecy of the Davidic temple. The New Testament church is the hermeneutical terminus and the eschatological fulfillment of the Davidic temple. 
But Schofield would have us return to the weak and beggarly elements of an earthly and temporal tabernacle that was only, quote, an example and shadow of good things to come, unquote. When Jesus our Lord concluded his parable of the vineyard, he declared that the vineyard owner would destroy the wicked, irresponsible husbandman who had persecuted his servants and killed his son, the rightful heir of the vineyard. Matthew tells us that, quote, the chief priests and the Pharisees perceived that Jesus spoke of them, unquote. But to be absolutely certain that there would be no doubt as to his meaning, Jesus this, then said to them, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Then at the end of his parable, Jesus shifted his imagery from the agricultural metaphor of the vineyard to the architectural metaphor of the temple. And Jesus said, have you never read the stone the builders rejected? The same has become head of the corner. Standing beside Jesus that day, the apostle Peter would never forget those words or that architectural imagery of the temple. Many years later, Peter would use the same temple imagery to remind the church of Jesus Christ that we have come to the living stone of the greater and more perfect tabernacle, Jesus Christ, and that we are in fact ourselves living stones built up into a spiritual house. And the great Apostle Paul himself reminds us that we are, quote, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth up into an holy temple of the Lord, unquote. Citing Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel's prophecy of the future temple. Paul succinctly declares to the Corinthians and to us, we, 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 